So this is our third session on prayer. And to give you an outline of what we're doing, the first hour we talked about the Siddur on prayer, and then we went into Yeshua on prayer, starting with the Lord's Prayer. And last time we did the Friend at Midnight. This, by the way, is all in Luke 11 through 18, which is the discourse on the way to Jerusalem. And again, notice the structure. Content of prayer is Lord's Prayer, then the assurance of prayer, the friend at midnight, and the Father's gifts. And now we're going to do the assurance of prayer again, which is the unjust judge. And we'll finish up with the proper attitude of prayer, which is the publican and the Pharisee. So the unjust judge and the publican and the Pharisee are in Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him night and day? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So let's look at the structure of this guy. I have heard this taught incorrectly. And the incorrect way that I have often heard it taught is to use our metaphor from last time, God is like a soda machine with a quarter stuck in the slot and you've got to keep beating on it until you finally get your Coke. And you could take that away from that because clearly there is a widow who is persistent and her persistence finally wears the judge down and the judge finally does what she wants him to do. In other words, if you nag long enough, you'll change God's mind. That's incorrect. So let's start at the beginning. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So the purpose of the parable is to teach them to pray all the time, which is to say always be in connection with God and not to lose heart. Now, let's look at the judge. He neither feared God nor respected men. Who's that sound like? Any one of our federal judges. Since the political realities are and the tradition in this country are, it's very, very hard to remove a judge. And I don't know of any judge that has been impeached simply because he's an idiot. You have to get caught stealing something or taking a bribe or or, you know something outright criminal before you can get removed as a judge. Hence, the judges are unaccountable. So you have that exact situation here. They neither fear God nor respect men. Now, this is a parable by way of contrast. What Yeshua is doing here is he is contrasting this judge with whom? The Father, God the Father, right? Does God the Father fall under the category of neither fearing God nor respecting man? No. In other words, this guy is a loose cannon, accountable to no one, doesn't care about anyone. And I think everybody reading this 
will look at that judge and say, this is not a good guy. Having said that then, he's being compared to God. And the comparison is, if even this judge will finally do what's right, then how much more will God do what's right? Everybody understand what's being set up here? This judge is being compared to God. There is no comparison between this judge and God. This judge, under enough pressure, will eventually do the right thing. Therefore, how much more will God, who is good, do the right thing immediately? The other thing you need to understand is oriental culture. What you have in this scenario is the very top of society and the very bottom of society. You've got a judge. He's on top of the heap. He is just about as high as it gets in Oriental society, except maybe the king. The lowest in society is a widow. She has no one to protect her. She has no one to care for her. So she is the ultimate victim. Everybody see the power difference that we have here? And so again, you can compare that power difference to us and to God. God is as high as it gets. And compared to God, we're not much. So you see the stratification that's being set up here? Now the other thing you have to understand is how things work in an Oriental society. It is not possible for the judge to take any action against the widow. It would ruin his reputation. In other words, here he is the very top of power in society and if he then takes action against this defenseless widow to get her out of his face he will lose whatever respect anybody has for him because an oriental gentleman does not behave that way so what she's doing is she's sitting in the court and as he comes in and out she's yelling at him and just raising heck and yelling at him every time he goes in and out he can't get rid of her. He can't get her out of his face. Because if he does, then he will lose all status. Everybody knows how the system works. Now, somebody who is a litigant, who is somewhat on the level of the judge, in other words, you have a rich merchant or a landowner or something like that who is a litigant, the judge can treat him differently, and that kind of a person cannot get away with this behavior. Because if you had a landowner that came in and was doing a suit over water rights, for example, and he was standing in the gallery screaming at the judge, judge would have him out of there on his ear in a heartbeat because there isn't that power disparity like there is with a widow. She can't defend herself. She doesn't have anybody to stand in her set. The landowner can go out and hire a lawyer. All sorts of resources available to that guy. So he is not allowed to behave the way she can get away with. Understand that the judge is not solving this woman's problem because he A, has any interest in her problem, or B, because he is righteous. In other words, if this were a righteous judge, he would take care of the widow because he is righteous. That would be something that a righteous man would do. He would defend a widow. That would, that would be part of what makes him righteous. This guy is not righteous. So the only reason that he is taking action on her suit is just to get her out of his face. She's disrupting his court. He can't throw her out. 
There's nothing he can do except A, listen to it, or B, hear her case. Now, understand that this is not teaching nagging. Because everything about this judge that causes him to finally hear the suit is something that is not a characteristic of God. In other words, this is not counseling you to nag God. As I say, God is not a vending machine with a coin stuck in its slot. And you don't just keep banging it and shaking it until it finally gives. That is not the model of prayer that we're to use. However, Paul says, pray constantly, right? So what's that mean? Always keep in contact. And that's different than nagging God. Big difference here. And it's important to understand that. And it's also, as I say, important to understand that the only reason this judge is doing anything is for his own purposes. Everything about this judge is unlike God. And then Yeshua, of course, brings that to your attention. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him night and day? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So the crying out to him night and day is not by way of nagging. It is by way of keeping in touch. But you understand how this can be misinterpreted. First thing you have, this widow that nags the judge, and the judge finally gives in, and then talks about God's people calling out to him night and day, and then the inference there is, God will finally get tired of you too, and he'll do something just to get you out of his face. But that's not what it says. It says that he will give justice to them speedily. Big difference. And then nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What does that mean? And notice that it led off with nevertheless. So it is in reference to what we just read. So taking what we have just read, nevertheless, will the Son of Man find faith on earth. Well, you have to be careful with faith. How you want to talk about that? Because at one level, faith is a gift from God. So to jump on someone for not having enough faith when it says in other parts of scripture that faith is a gift of God, that's problematic. It takes faith to continually come before God, especially when it doesn't necessarily look like it's bearing fruit. Have we talked about why prayer doesn't get answered? Let's go back to the book of Daniel. He prays twice. It's 920. While I was seeking and praying, confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved, Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. This is the first instance. This is the 70 weeks vision. And what he says is, as soon as you started praying, the word went out, I mounted up, and I came down here to give you understanding, right? So when was the prayer answered? Immediately. If you go down to 10, 10, 10. Now this is his second prayer. 
the first prayer having been answered, we're now in another prayer, another incident, move forward in time. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So how long has he been praying? 21 days. So what Gabriel says here is, I got shipped out the first day. Verse 12, said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So I got shipped out on day one of your 21-day fast. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for the days yet to come. So what he's saying is, you started praying, you humbled yourself, I got dispatched, I got hung up. I was delayed for 21 days and in fact I had to have Michael come and bail me out so I could complete and get to you and answer your prayer. So in both cases, when was the prayer answered? Immediately. There wasn't any delay. Isn't that what Yeshua is saying in the stuff we just read, like on the unrighteous judge? God will answer you speedily. In other words, he'll answer you right away. However, we are seeing here one case. This is the only case I know of in Scripture like this, so I'm hanging a lot on one case. But God wrote it in the book, for us to understand, so I feel reasonably confident. But in this case, Daniel continued to pray for 21 days. Now the question you have to ask yourself is if Daniel had given up after a week, would his prayer have been answered? God answered the prayer immediately. He didn't receive the answer for 21 days. Let me ask the question a different way. Had he stopped praying on day seven, would he have received his answer? Johnnyology? I think that his prayers were necessary during that 21-day period to help those two archangels burn through the interference. In other words, had he given up on his prayer at day 7, I don't know that they would have been able to burn through. You know, do with that whatever you want. But clearly, Daniel continued to pray during the entire 21 days. And notice where the problem was with him getting his answer. It was not with God. God was not the problem. It's in the heavenlies where the war is. And so what you've got between God, who answers your prayers immediately, and you, who receives the thing prayed for, you've got all sorts of flack. Your persistence in prayer is not by way of getting God to move, your persistence in prayer is by way of getting the crud out of the way. His prayer and his faith and his putting his prayers into words released power that the archangels were able to use to help them burn through the interference. He was an active part of the fight that was taking place to get those two archangels to where Gabriel could talk to him. The lesson here is sort of two things, maybe three. 
first one is God is not the problem. Second thing is your prayers get answered as soon as you utter them. And then the third thing is it may take persistence to burn through spiritual interference between you and God and to get the answer to the prayer manifest. My suggestion is that if you don't exercise that persistence, you may never get any results from your prayers, not because God doesn't answer your prayers, but because you haven't put forth the power necessary to get them through. Back here with Yeshua, the unjust judge needed to be harangued. He did have a coin stuck in his slot. He wasn't doing what he was going to do. He was defective. So by beating on the side of the soda machine, she finally jarred one loose. That's nagging. But Yeshua contrasts that judge with God and says, you don't have to do that with God because God in no way matches this unjust judge. And as far as I know, the scriptures are consistent on that. I don't find anything inconsistent anywhere. So let's finally see if we can finish the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So who's the audience here? Me. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. I think everybody has got enough biblical experience to recognize that these are two opposing types. Just in the same way as the widow and the judge were opposing types. You had the powerful and the weak. Here you have the righteous and the wicked. So to people listening to this parable, Pharisees would have been code word for righteous. Tax collector would have been code word for wicked. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This one is very difficult, especially for reasonably competent people and for people who are not murderers, extortioners, and, and basically follow the rules. This is one of the hardest parables that I know for people who basically follow the rules. Because as you go through life following the rules, you can lull yourself into thinking that you're pretty hot stuff. And you can always find someone who's worse than you are. Doesn't matter who you are, you can always find someone who is worse than you are, and your tendency is always to say, but I'm not like that. I may have my little faults, but I'm sure not like that. And that's true, which is what makes it so hard. The Pharisee, I am sure, was a fine, upstanding citizen, and he was a righteous man, and he followed Torah, and did all of the right things, 
and his relationship to God was, if not as a peer, at least one of the inner circle, somebody that God would play golf with, and he's mistaken. And what Yeshua says is he's mistaken. The one who acknowledges his sin and the one who acknowledges that he needs the mercy of God under all circumstances is the one who ultimately is justified. So, having said that, what's the purpose of following Torah? If the tax collector, who is a model of wickedness, leaves justified, why would you follow Torah? Why not just go out and have a good time? With respect to Torah, is it then unimportant that having been justified, the publican thereafter goes back out and goes right back into all of the things that he was asking forgiveness for? Is there expected to have been a change in him having been justified? Or is this sort of a, you go to the temple and you get your ticket punched, and oh boy, justified, and then you go back out and you do behave just as you did before you got justified. The way I describe it is the purpose of the Torah is it teaches how those who are justified will live. And it is not a way to get yourself justified. Following Torah does not get you saved. What following Torah is, is the response of someone who has been saved to the mercy and grace of God. Then what you do is you turn around and you figure out what the rules are that this merciful and gracious God has, and you follow those out of gratitude for having been saved. And it's real, real important to get the order of those two things. You see it in the book of Exodus. Salvation first, then Torah. Not the other way around. Torah is not given to those in need of salvation. It is given to those who are already saved. Following Torah is really nothing more than enlightened self-interest. If you follow Torah, your life will go well, generally speaking. If you don't ever steal anything, you aren't going to wind up in jail for stealing. If you don't commit adultery, you're not going to be shot by a jealous husband. And on and on and on and on. So following the Torah is enlightened self-interest. It makes your life go better. And God gave you that Torah as a standard of behavior for those who are part of his kingdom. They don't get you into his kingdom, but once you're in there, those are the ground rules by which he expects you to live. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you. Thank you.